Hi folks, this is Deb Bowen, and I welcome you, whether you're listening to this episode on my Psychic Teachers podcast or my Deb and Friends Quest for Connection podcast. In this crazy world of social distancing and a tropical storm that's just passed by, life is very different. We're learning to be very creative as we work to bring you interesting, timely topics. So sit back and enjoy, and I'm so happy to be with you this week. As you probably know, I love signs and symbols and similes and metaphors. The world of literature and poetry and music are filled with them, of course, and so is mythology. Often the signs, symbols, similes, and metaphors in mythology cross culture, time, space, as they do in the stories I'm sharing with you in this episode. So if you like what you're hearing, let me know and I'll do more. I love studying mythical and magical beings, our human connection to them, and the meaning they bring to our lives every day. Come with me as we join through a journey throughout ancient Crete, Greece, Egypt, and Celtic lands as I discuss some well-known and deeply loved stories and others that might be new to you. So let's begin on the Isle of Crete many, many years ago when King Minos had built a maze to hold his pet, the mighty Minotaur, a man-eating monster with a human head and a bull's body. In those days, Crete ruled Athens, and Athens was required to pay an annual tribute to Crete of seven young men and seven young women. They were imprisoned in the maze and eaten by the Minotaur. Now, King Minos had a daughter whose name was Ariadne, and it so happened that when she was a lovely young maiden, Theseus, I think I'm saying his name right, son of the Athenian king, was among the young people sent to Crete to be killed by the Minotaur. He and Ariadne met before he entered the maze and fell in love. She agreed to help him slay the Minotaur, and he, in turn, agreed to take her away from her father's rule. Ariadne gave him a sword with which he could slay the Minotaur. But even more important, she gave him a ball of yarn, which he could unwind as he traversed the maze, and by which he could find his way back out to her, where she had tied the other end of the yarn to her wrist. Now, you know how the story ends, almost. Theseus kills the Minotaur and returns to Ariadne, guided by the thread she gave him. They sail away to the Isle of Noxos, N-A-X-O-S where we assume they will live happily ever after. That's where the story stops for most of us. However, that's not the end of the story. Theseus abandons her in the night, sailing away. Fortunately, Dionysus, the god of wine and revelry, arrives, falls in love with her, and they marry and have several children. Many years ago, a wonderful friend of mine opened a shop called Ariadne Crafts. It featured beautiful handmade art by weavers, potters, jewelers, and so many more artists. To my friend, 
The maze represented the circuitous path we traverse as we sink deeper and deeper into a world of impersonal machine-made consumerism, fueled by an ever-growing lack of caring for the world around us, including the arts. For my friend at Ariadne Crafts, the Minotaur, of course, represented the ultimate loss of hope in a world that has lost the arts, the ability to connect, and the ability to love. Ariadne and her thread represent a way out of the maze of technology into a simpler, saner world. And believe me, I think today, given all of the technology craziness that has been brought to light uh, in the past few months, this is a very timely story and something to investigate and think about how you feel about it. I say to you, as I come to you through technology, but to many women today, including Sue Monk Kidd, there's another way of looking at this story of Ariadne. In her wonderful book, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, she discusses this myth at length. Kidd tells us that Theseus abandoning Ariadne was really a gift because it left her free to marry Dionysus, a god of dance, joy, creativity, spirit and wine, the god of ecstasy. In their union, Ariadne finds her positive masculine side. By aiding in the slaying of the Minotaur within, she has made way in her world and in her life for a union with her creative side to shine forth. I just love that myth. Move with me now to the Celtic Islands. Seal-like creatures, silkies, actually have several names and appear in many cultures around the globe. And I want to share the story from the Celtic Islands that I know best. I first heard this legend of the silky from an old folk song cataloged by a, a researcher whose name was Child in his Child Ballad collection. And the first version of this story I ever heard was sung in a beautiful song by Joan Baez. In that version of the story, the silky is male, although the story is told about both genders. Here's the story as cataloged in the Child Ballad Collection. A male silky comes to land and woos a young maiden. She is unaware he is a silky and is unaware of the nature of the child she will bear as a result of their union. The silky makes himself known to her and takes the child back to the sea with him. He predicts she will marry a, quote, gunner good, who will kill both my young son and me. We are left to assume at the end of the song that this comes true. In the female version of the story, a group of female silkies come ashore to dance in the moonlight. They shed their seal skin, dancing and frolicking on the shore. Unbeknownst to them, a local fisherman is watching from behind the rocks. He sneaks closer and, and steals one of the silky seal skins. When the dances is over and the other silkies don their skins, the one whose skin was stolen is left abandoned and frightened on the shore. The fisherman appears and she has no choice but to go home with him in her human form. He has hidden her seal skin 
and she is obliged to stay with him as his wife for seven years and a day. During this time, she bears him a son, but mourns her life every day that she misses as a silky. On the day, seven years and a day later, that her time is completed with the fisherman, he begrudgingly returns her sealskin as required by custom. She kisses her son goodbye, looking deeply into his eyes so she will never forget him. She exchanges her human clothes for her real soul skin and dives into the water. Clarissa Pinkola's Estes, in her telling of this story in her book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, says, when it's time, it's time. Certainly, she means that the silky woman's sentence of seven years and a day is over when it's over. But she also means that there's an internal clock within us, a clock that not only knows when it's time for a shift, a change, but propels us to act, forces us to act. I remember the first time I read this story. I wondered about a mother who would abandon her child because he is half human. He could not survive under the water in the world of the Silky, at least in this version of the legend. As miserable as she was on land, she knew her child would find a way to survive. and He would be fine. And she had to do what she was being called to do to answer her true nature. When it's time, it's time. If you've ever felt that undeniable call in your life, you recognize it when you hear it, and there is nothing to do but answer. This amazing story has been told in several classic movies. My favorite is an Irish film called The Secret of Roan Inish. Others that I know of, and I'm sure there are more, are Song of the Sea, Undyne, and The Seventh Stream. The third mythical and mystical being that I'd like to discuss is the phoenix. Perhaps more than any other mythical being, the phoenix legend crosses many cultures. Phoenix in ancient Egypt and in classical antiquity is associated with the worship of the sun and immortality. In Egypt, the phoenix was said to be as large as an eagle with brilliant scarlet and gold plumage and a beautiful, uplifting, cheerful cry. According to legend, only one phoenix can exist at any one time. And they often live to be at least, at least 500 years old. As its end approaches, the phoenix gathers boughs and spices to make an aromic firebed, sets the nest on fire, and is consumed by flames. From the ashes, miraculously springs a new phoenix, which flies to the planet of the sun. Now, I'm not sure I understand that part of the story. I mean, I thought the purpose of the rebirth was to keep the phoenix here on Earth. But, you know, that's how legends go. So who knows? In the Roman version of the story, uh, phoenix is revered so deeply. Their coins in in ancient Rome, showed the emperor's head on one side and the image of a phoenix on the other. The phoenix was compared to the inability for Rome to die, 
just as the phoenix can't die, at least 500 years worth. And it appears on the coin uh, in, in the late Roman Empire as a symbol of the eternal city. It was also widely interpreted as an allegory of resurrection and life after death, which again, of course, began to appeal to the emerging Christianity. And even as Rome began its decline, which actually did, of course, as we know, the phoenix flourished in early Christian Europe. Its message of rebirth and eternal life fit Christian themes, and popes like um, St. Clement, who lived uh, about 96 AD, used the phoenix to prove Jesus's resurrection in his just, uh, writings. Monks included phoenix in uh, their writings about the Middle Ages, making no distinction between God's wondrous creatures, real or imaginary. During the Renaissance, the phoenix was a pop popular emblem of Queen Elizabeth I and of martyrs such as Joan of Arc. The phoenix also appears in Jewish tradition. The Talmud tells how the phoenix was the only animal allowed to stay in the Garden Eden, the Garden of Eden, because it refused to eat the forbidden apple. God granted the bird immortality for its obedience. And there are mixed stories about the abilities of the phoenix. Some legends say the phoenix is amazingly strong and can fly great distances carrying heavy loads, and that the tears of the phoenix can heal wounds. Think Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets here. Others say the ashes from the fire in which the phoenix is reborn have healing powers. And yet others say that the phoenix only heals symbolically in that it reminds us that we all have an opportunity in our lives for rebirth and growth and change. There are so many other magical and mythical beings I could cover. And if you'd like for me to do so, let me know. Here's a sampling of uh, beings that I'd like to talk about later. Remora, Salamander, Centaur, Dragon, Chimithria, Serbius, Manticore, Manticore, Sphinx, Hippocampus, Griffin, Hippogriff, Grindylo. And that's not to mention fairies, elves, pixies, trolls, leprechauns, and velas. And how about just the magical legends of snakes and owls and spiders and coyotes and so many more? We could go on and on and on. I just think this is a wonderful topic. In any case, here's what I want to point out to us. A common thread that runs through all of these stories is this. There are connections among us and beings, such as the phoenix, selkie, unicorns, and even the sad minotaur, that remind us that we have much to learn from the lessons they teach us, what they symbolize to us, both collectively and individually. Barbara Hanna, who was a friend and student of Swiss psychologist Carl Jung, says in her book, The Archetypical Symbolism of Animals, that Jung believed, quote, the animal is sublime and in fact represents the divine side of the human psyche. Jung believed that animals live much more in contact with a secret order in nature itself 
and far more than human beings, lives in close contact with absolute knowledge of the unconscious. In contrast to humankind, the animal is the living being that follows its own inner laws beyond good and evil, and is, in this sense, superior. End quote. While Jung was talking about real animals here, I think this is also true of those mythical or not beings found around the world. Think Bigfoot and Yeti and more. So I hope you've enjoyed this travel through mythical beings. As always, thank you for being a part of our podcast family. You can learn more about our work and offerings on our website. Samantha's website is samanthafay.com and mine is debbowen.com. We also invite you to join our Facebook pages and we'd appreciate you following us and leaving us a comment on our iTunes pages. That helps others find us. And finally, as always, keep questing, stay connected, and be the light. Thanks, everyone.